Brothers and sisters, I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles with me this morning to our text, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 8 and verses 1 through 5 this morning. Revelation chapter 8 and verses 1 to 5. Revelation chapter 8 and verses 1 to 5. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's holy word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censure, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Thus far, is a reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Now, brothers and sisters, in the opening of the sixth seal, there we said we saw the inaugurated end-time judgment. And that brought to conclusion then for us the sixth chapter. But instead of beginning right away in chapter 7 with the opening of the seventh seal, as you might expect, what we had there was a, a parenthetical vision of the, of the church militant and the church triumphant that we read about over the past couple weeks. And we said that that was given to the church to encourage us after what it was just described under those first six seals. So that the church might know that it, as the world is judged and as the world experiences the, the wrath of God, that God's people, that the saints here on earth would know that all who belong to the Lord would not be lost. Likewise, it was meant to encourage them in the sense that, that they might know that although they are struggling and battling and enduring tribulation right now here on earth, that it will not last forever. Right? That those who belong to the church militant will one day belong to the church triumphant. And that's, what, that's what chapter 7 was, was really all about. Now, as we begin though to look at chapter 8 and the opening of the seven seal, the scene seems to be very anticlimactic, doesn't it? Look at verse 1 with me. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence. Silence was the response to the opening of the seventh seal. And immediately after this silence that we read about in verse 1, in verse 2, we are then introduced to these seven angels with seven trumpets, which appear to begin a brand new section for us. Now, there are many interpretations uh, that people take with respect to the eighth chapter. And in particular, there are also different interpretations with how we are to understand just these first five verses in the eighth chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, 
I submit to you that there are, are two good interpretations or two good ways in which one can understand these first five verses. And as we go, I will let you know what they are and, and why I think one is better than the other. But before I do, there's, there's one other interpretation, a popular interpretation, that I first want us to see we must exclude. Right? We must not interpret uh, this eighth chapter in this way. And so, one uh, author of the, of the position that I want to exclude, which is the futurist view, would be uh, Robert Thomas. Robert Thomas is a significant uh, author for the futurist position, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. And here in verse 1, he says this, The silence of verse 1 is to prepare for the awful consequences of the seven trumpet judgments that will commence shortly. And so what he's explaining to us, and what he goes on to explain in his commentary, is that verse 1, this silence, kind of sets us up or prepares us for what is to come chronologically after verse 1. That's what, that's what the futurist approach would say. But now, Thomas himself, though, sees that one of the strongest arguments against his own position is this. He says, it's the similarity before the sixth seal and Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. That is one of the most difficult things for the futurist position to get around. Now, if you remember, look with me at chapter 6 real quick in verses 12 to 17. Remember what we read under the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars fell to the earth, and the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Right, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Now what is it that we read in Matthew 24, verse 29 that Thomas is directing us to? Well here, what do we read? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Okay? So what we said here is going on in the unveiling of the sixth seal and of Matthew 24-29 is they're describing the same events. right? They're, they're describing the end time judgment. And so here, this is why then Thomas says this is his biggest hurdle to climb is that if... Revelation uh, chapter 6 and the unveiling of the 6th seal in the 12th to 17th verses is saying the same thing or is corresponding to the same time as Matthew 24:29, which is the final judgment which we say it does, then what Thomas says is this, that the only option is that the seven trumpets do not chronologically follow the seals. Even Robert Thomas, the futurist himself, sees this fact. 
If Matthew 24 is describing the same thing as the sixth seal, the trumpets can't follow the seals chronologically. But rather, he says, they cover the same ground as the seals. He is 100% right. 100% right. right. We see this recapitulation going on. Right? That is what I want us to see today. Right? We see Recapitulation simply means kind of the restating, the retelling of the main points again. And so this is what we see under the trumpet judgments. We see recapitulation of the same events that were described under the seals, now being described under the trumpet judgments. And in fact, brothers and sisters, I submit to you, it's the same thing you'll see under the bold judgments as well. Each of these sevens, the seven seals, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowls being poured out, are all describing the exact same period of time. That is what, again, the number seven symbolizes, right? The completion, the, the fullness of this time. And the fullness of God's wrath and judgment during that time. Right? So all of these sevens are symbolized, or meant to symbolize, right, what is going on during the age of the church up to the judgment of the world. This is what we see in, in all of these things. This is why I keep saying to you that we are not to read the book of Revelation chronologically, but rather we are to see these things that are described as parallel visions. They are parallel visions. And let me give you an example, a prime example, exactly of what I mean, using our text today. I would ask that you turn with me real quick to Revelation chapter 11. Turn to Revelation chapter 11 with me. And look with me at verse 15. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Now, your Bible, like my Bible, probably has a little title above there. What does it say? The, the seventh trumpet. This is the, the final trumpet in the judgment trumpets. Let's read verse 15 together. Then the seventh angel blew his Trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Drop down to verse 19 with me. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within the temple. And what do we read here? There were flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. So at the end of the seventh trumpet judgment, we see flashings of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Now turn with me please to chapter 16. Chapter 16. At the beginning of chapter 16, you have that, that little title that says, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Here, this is describing those bold judgments that are poured out. Look with me starting at verse 17, please. This is now the seventh angel pouring out the, the seventh bowl, the, the final judgment of the bold judgments. Starting at verse 17 then. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out from the temple from the throne saying, It is done. 
And now what do we read in verse 18? And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Now look back once more at our text today. Revelation chapter 8, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashing of lightning, and in earthquake. Pretty interesting, huh? That the under the seventh seal, under the seventh trumpet judgment, under the seventh bowl that is poured out upon the world, they each are describing the exact same thing. They are all describing the end time judgment. And so, brothers and sisters, I make this appeal to you. This necessarily then excludes a chronological reading of the text. It excludes a chronological reading. What it demonstrates to us is that these are depicting the exact same things. They are depicting the exact same things to us. In addition to that, look with me at chapter 8, starting at verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. The third angel, this is just the third angel, he blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers, and on the springs of water, the name of the stars Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now this is interesting. How can the trumpets come after the seals How can stars fall when under the sixth seal all the stars already fell? And the moon was already turned to black. Or excuse me, the sun was turned to black and the the moon was turned to red. And so this here again demonstrates to us that the trumpet judgments do not come chronologically after the seal judgments, but it is a parallel vision that is describing the same events under the seals. That is what the trumpet judgments we will see as we look at that going forward. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why I say to you, recapitulation is the only way that we can understand what is going on in the book of Revelation properly and not run into into ditches. Now, there is a slight nuance now, like I said, with how we can understand these first five verses, which good... Reformed folk can do and still see all the trumpet judgments exactly the same. But there can be a slight nuance to these first five verses. And the nuance is this. The first group would say this, that chapter 8, verse 1, describes the seventh seal and it ends. And so verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5 are now introducing the trumpet judgments, starting a new section of sorts. That's what one viewpoint would say. The second viewpoint would say this, 
that 8.1 reveals the, the opening of the seventh seal to us. That verse 2 now is, a, is an introduction, a brief introduction that is inserted about the trump, trumpet judgments that are to, to begin in verse 6. But it's only a brief introduction because in verses 3 to 5, we return to the description of the seventh seal. Right? So that verses 3 and 5 are not in, 3, 4 and 5 are not an introduction to the judgments, but rather they describe the seventh seal. And brothers and sisters, it is, it is this latter interpretation that I think is the best interpretation is the interpretation that I take and I'll tell you why. I'll give you a couple reasons why. First, as I've already said, we've seen what happens at the end of the seventh trumpet judgment. And we see what happened at the end of the seventh bowl judgment. Right? Peals of, of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and a great earthquake, which all happen when? In verse 5 of chapter 8. Which means that verse 5 of chapter 8 is describing the end time judgment of the seventh seal and, and can't be describing the trumpet judgments in verse 6 and going forward. And so that's one of the, the major reasons why I think verses 3, 4, and 5 relate back to verse 1 and are not a part of the introduction to, to chapter, or to verse 6 because they follow the same pattern as the other judgments. They follow the same pattern as the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments. Right? The sealed judgments likewise end in the exact same way. The second reason why I believe that we should understand the beginning of chapter 8 this way and see verse 2 as simply introducing a new section and functioning almost as like a, a, a transition statement before returning to describing the seven seals because we see this done elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to chapter 15, please. Turn with me to chapter 15 of the book of Revelation. What we're going to see is verse 2, 3, and 4 in, in chapter 15 function the exact same way as what we see in chapter 8. So verse 1 of chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues which are the last for which with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, drop down to verse 5. After what is described in 2, 3, and 4. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Now, look at 2, 3, 4. And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the mighty, true, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You, for Your righteous acts have been revealed. 
Do we see that? We see the angels in verse 1, the seven angels with the seven plagues, and you don't hear about them again until verse 5. Right? There is an inter- interruption. There's something inserted between that. And that is verses 2, 3, and 4, which have nothing to do with verse 1 or verse 5, but rather have to do with chapter 14 and verses 14 to 20, which is describing end-time judgment. And so, this is what I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters. We see this exact same thing going on in chapter 8. In verse 2, we have this introduction. Seven angels with the seven trumpets. Then, we go back to end-time judgment. Right? We go back to verses 3, 4, and 5, which are describing the, the seventh seal. It's the same thing we see here in chapter 15. First, you see seven angels with seven plagues, but then it returns to a different vision that describes the end-time judgment that came before. Only then to return to the seven angels and the seven plagues. And that's the same thing we see here in our text. Because it's not until chapter 8, verse 6, that we return to these trumpet judgments and the angels. In verse 6 of chapter 8, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And so we see them in verse 2, and we don't see them picked up again until verse 6. And so we see the exact same thing going on in chapter 8 as in chapter 15, which is why then I'm saying to you that I think the best way to understand this, because of of these two reasons and many more, but but specifically these two reasons, it's best to understand verses 3, 4, and 5 as describing the seventh seal, as describing end-time judgment, and not as being a part of verse 2, describing this new vision of the seven trumpet judgments. All right, And so, I, I hope we were able to, to wrap our, our heads around all of that. But with this understanding in mind, then, what I want to do is I want to now proceed with that kind of in, in the background of our understanding. And let's now unpack what we see in these five verses, which I believe ultimately are given to the church that teach us actually the importance of prayer. That's what these, these verses are given to us today, to teach us the importance of prayer. And so we're going to have three points this morning, and our first point will be this. The silence of the seventh seal. The silence of the seventh seal. That is our first point this morning. And with that, we read in verse 1 once more, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, to understand the significance of silence, what do we want to do? The same thing we've been doing all along as we've been going, uh, pushing forward through the book of Revelation, and that is, look back at the Old Testament, right? Right? What's, what's, how does uh, silence function in the Old Testament? That and that will help us and in, in to understand how it is to function here as we are reading it in the book of Revelation. As remember, the book of Revelation, as I've said once and I'll continue to say, is a divine commentary of the Old Testament. And so let's look back to what does silence function as under the Old Testament. And what we will see, brothers and sisters, is that silence in the Old Testament is oftentimes associated with judgment. Right? Silence in the Old Testament is associated with judgment. One example of this is Psalm chapter 31, verse 17, where David says this, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. 
Let them go silently to Sheol. Right? Do we see that those who persecute God's people are judged and then they sit in silence? That's what we, that's what we read about here. There are a plethora of other texts that we could read about in which the Israelites are silenced throughout the Old Testament when God judges them. But I think that there are really two texts in particular that are extremely relevant to our discussion and, and lay in the background of our text and perhaps is being alluded to by John here. The first would be Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. Here we read this. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The second text is Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13. We read this, Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. And so the response or the anticipated response of God's judgment upon all the earth or all those who dwell on the earth or all the flesh is that they stand in awe silently. That's what we read there in Habakkuk and in Zechariah. The response to God's judgment upon all the earth is that they stand in awe silently. Now, the sixth seal judgment is what? We said that that is end time judgment. The seventh, the opening of the seventh seal, what we need to see that as is a continuation of that end time judgment. And so verse one of chapter eight is most probably Drawing from this Old Testament understanding of silence connected to God's judgment. And so this silence then is the response to God's judgment, which is horrifying upon the earth. Or what we read in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17 is horrifying, isn't it? And so all stand in silence. Now we're told that the silence in our text is in heaven. But that's not to the exclusion of the earth. It's pointed out that silence is in heaven. Because one of the main points that John is trying to drive home to us is that the origin of God's divinely appointed judgment comes from His holy temple in heaven upon the earth. That is what he is trying to relay to us. And that's the same thing we read about in Habakkuk and Zechariah. In both of those texts, God, we're told, is in His holy dwelling place. He's in His holy temple. And so all the earth was to keep silent. So the earth is judged. All stand in silence as God is in His holy temple. So that what we see then is the silence extends not only to the earth, but up to heaven as all of creation itself is brought before the throne of God and made to see His judgment. And it causes them all to stand in astonishment and they are seized by it. They cannot open their mouths nor say one word. Now what about this half hour? About a half hour. Well, brothers and sisters, I must admit, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know for certain. We don't know for certain. In the Greek text, the the, the Greek word for about is there. And so it tells us that this isn't meant to convey a a concrete period of time, but rather it's telling us an approximation of something, isn't it? And so one possibility is this, that throughout the book of Revelation, the that the time period of an hour is used. Well, an hour can be about, right, about a half hour could be an hour, couldn't it? And so, the hour though in the book of Revelation isn't really used for time so much as it's used to describe a judgment that's going to come. 
Right? We see this in a text like Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3. Here we read this. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. And so we see that there an hour isn't used as a, as a time frame, but rather it's used to describe like suddenness, unexpectedness. Right? You don't know what time he will come, what hour he will come. And so there is a possibility that this about half an hour is used figuratively in the same way to describe the, the suddenness or the unexpectedness upon which this judgment is going to come upon all who dwell on the earth. Or it could just be figurative for a short period of time. We don't know which one it is, but, but both could be the case. But what we do know is this, that God's judgment on the earth will be a reflection of His majesty. And it will be a reflection of His sovereignty over all things. And it commands silence from all who behold it as it's a manifestation of the, of the glory of God, both in heaven and on earth. Which is why William Hendrickson says this, God's final wrath is so fearful and awful that the inhabitants of heaven stand spellbound, lost for a time, half an hour, in breathless and in silent amazement. That is what the opening of the seventh seal produces. Now in verse 2 then, it, it seems to be maybe a bit misplaced, doesn't it? If, if, if verse 2 is just an introduction that we don't pick back up on until verse 6, we have to ask, is this a bit misplaced? But the answer is no. Right? Rather, what I want us to see verse 2 as is really a literary device in order to show us something, to teach us something. Right, what we see occurring under the seventh seal and what we will see going forward under verses 3 to 5 is, is really God's response to the prayers of the saints. That's what we're going to be looking at in verses 3, 4, and 5. And so verse 2 being squished between verse 1 and verses 3, 4, and 5 is meant to show us that what is being described isn't just an answer to the prayers of the saints under the seven seals, but it likewise is an answer to the prayers of the saints under the seven trumpets. Right? So that the, the seven trumpets, just like the seven seals, are an answer to the cries of God's people. Right? That's what it is meant to, to teach us and show us as it's briefly introduced in verse 2. And we're going to pick back much more on that next week as we look at the first four trumpets. But what I want us to see is what I just said, that verses 3, 4, and 5 have to do with God's response to the prayers of the saints. And look at where this takes place. Where does this take place? In verse 3, where are we told? At the altar we read. What should this hearken our memory back to? How about chapter 6, verses 9 and 10? Where did the cries of the saints come out of? From underneath the altar, didn't it? And so I think this is further solidifies that, that fact that verses 3, 4, and 5 have to do with the seal judgments and not the, the trumpet judgments. And with this then being said, it leads us to our second point this morning, which is the seventh seal is an answer to prayer. The seventh seal is an answer to prayer. This is what we see in verses 3, 4, and 5. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. 
And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So here we see that this, this angel offers up the prayers of the saints as God's appointed messenger before the altar. Now this ought to cause us to likewise think back to what? The priests of the Old Testament who did this very same thing as the, as the priest would carry a, a golden censer. Or we may think of it like a, a fire pan with hot coals in it. And they would take it to the holy place before the altar of incense which we read about in Exodus 30 where God first tells Moses to build this altar of incense. And incense is, is added to this golden censer, to this fire pan. And with that, this sweet aroma arose up to the heavens. Right? That's what would occur because when you, when you put incense upon these hot coals, what it would produce is this big, big cloud of smoke as it would go up into the sky. And this is what's being depicted for us then in our text today as incense is being added to the prayers of the saints. Right? That as the, the saints of the prayers arose up to God, they were delightfully received and accepted by the Lord as they were brought to the altar by the angel. And in response to the prayers of the saints that rose up to God with that sweet-smelling aroma, what happens? Well, we're told that the censer filled with fire was thrown down on the earth. That throwing down of the censer filled with fire, as we said, along with the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl, is describing end time judgment, which we see is then response to the prayers of the saints in verse three. Right? Verse five is a response to verse three. And so as we read this text today, if there's one thing I think that Christ intends for his church to to, to get and derive from this text this morning, it is this. It is the importance of prayer. Right? He wants His church to recognize how greatly significant prayer is to the church. Right? The church in many ways throughout Scripture is depicted as an army. I actually think that this is behind the imagery of the 12,000 of each tribe before the throne that we read about earlier in the book of Revelation. Right? It, it depicts for them standing there almost as, as an army before the Lord. Right? This is why we call ourselves what? The, the church militant, the church here on earth. But I ask you this, what is the weapon of the army? Right? What is our weapon before Satan? What is our, our weapon before the world? Right? What is the weapon God has given to us by which He will bring the kingdom to its consummation? It's prayer. It's prayer. We don't go about the world with guns and swords and knives to defeat our enemies. Instead, brothers and sisters, we defeat our enemies through prayer. Right? Prayer is the most powerful weapon that the Christian has at their disposal. And it's through the united prayers of all the saints that we read in our text today that end time judgment will come. If you recall, this is what the saints prayed for back in chapter 6. And verse 10, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge those who dwell on the earth? And so the fire cast down to the earth is God's righteous and final response to the prayers of the saints. And so this ought to show us then, brothers and sisters, how important prayer is. But not just individually. 
It ought to show us how important prayer is, but not just as a family. It ought to show us how important prayer is corporately, as a, as a body together. Right? There is so much power in prayer, especially in the united prayer of God's people. This is why James tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Well, I ask you this, how much more power then in the prayers of 30 saints together? Or a hundred saints? Or a thousand saints? Or a hundred thousand saints? Or a million saints together petitioning the Lord? Paul understood this, didn't he? <coughs> Excuse me. Paul understood this. Which is why continually through the epistles, he's asking the saints to pray for him. Because he understands that God brings things about through the prayers of the saints. So if Paul was going to be delivered from his enemies, it would be through the prayers of the saints. If Paul's ministry would be a success, it would be through the ministry of the saints, the prayers of the saints. And yet then, brothers and sisters, I ask you this. Why do we pray so little? Why do we pray so little? Why do we put so little value on prayer? Today, as I, as I speak to you now, there are many people sitting here amongst you who are afraid to pray. You are afraid to pray perhaps because you are not eloquent in speech or because you, you feel that your prayers will be too short or too simple. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What do we read about in the text? All the prayers of the saints went before the Lord. All of them. Those who prayed long, those who prayed short, those who were eloquent in speech, and those who were simple in speech. God receives all the prayers of His people. Your prayers do not get lost in the sky. They don't get lost in the air. They get to their intended target. And Christ does not cast them aside, nor does He turn a deaf ear to them. And so we see, brothers and sisters, that prayer is the Christian duty of us all. Prayer is the great resource that God has given to everyone here today. And He is ready to answer your prayers. He loves to answer your prayers and to bestow His great gifts upon you. This is what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 7, verses 9-12. to or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven, will He give good gifts to you who ask Him? And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you, are you struggling with sin? Are you struggling with sin today? You know what you must do? You must pray. Are you battling temptation? Well, then pray. Are you overcome by the evil in this world, by abortion and by injustice and ungodly laws and attacks on marriage and family? You know what you need to do? You need to pray. If your children are not saved, pray. If your family members that you love dearly are not saved, pray. If they are backsliding, pray. Right? Prayer is the great resource God has given to us. And one of the chief problems of the church and why we don't see things getting done is because we don't pray. We neglect our prayer life. 
We are not devoted to prayer as God has called us to be. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because we are a people who always feel like we need to be doing something out and about. We need to be engaged in some activity. If I really want to have an effect on the kingdom of God, I must be a part of this group. I must be a part of that group. We want to feel and we want to see the effects of our efforts. And all of those things are great. All of those things are true. I don't want to discourage anyone from being a part of activities or groups. But brothers and sisters, nothing that you do as Christian men and women is more important than prayer. Be a part of activities. Go out, do things. Be a part of groups. But do not replace activity. Do not replace your prayer with activity. Right? To be devoted to prayer is God's will for your life and mine. Right? Prayer, as we see in our text, is the means by which judgment comes upon the earth. It is the prayers of the saints. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not as if our prayers can control God on a string. We pray and He must do something. But rather, we must understand that your prayers have been ordained by God. And He ordained that your prayers be the means by which He brings the kingdom to its consummation. And so, brothers and sisters, know that God loves your prayers. That they are a sweet-smelling aroma to God as they go up. But the question that must be asked, though, is why? Why? Because the holy of us here who sits today is still a sinner. The one who prays the best here still has their prayers mixed with impurity. And so, how is it then, brothers and sisters, that our prayers are acceptable to God? Because we surely need something to make them acceptable so that they would be a a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. Is that something that needs to be done? Something that you and I can do? The answer is a resounding no. Rather, the only reason that your prayers and my prayers are acceptable before Almighty God is because of Christ and Christ alone. Right? Christ is the only advocate. He is our only mediator between God and man. Right? Christ Jesus, the righteousness, who, who alone makes our prayers sweet-smelling before the Lord. Right? Who alone is the reason why our prayers ascend up to God and why they are heard and why they are answered. And so this leads us into our third and our final point this morning, which is the great intercessor for all the prayers of the saints. The great intercessor for all the prayers of the saints. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see that connection between the altar and incense. And we see that connection in the New Testament to what Christ has done in His salvific work symbolized by the altar and the incense in our text here today. In Leviticus chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, we read this about the the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 12 and 13. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, 
that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is, that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Right? So here in Leviticus chapter 16 verses 12 and 13, what are we reading about? The day of atonement. What was it that the day of atonement foreshadowed? Right? The coming of Christ. It is death on the cross by which He cleanses us from sin. But not only cleansing us from sin, but likewise in His coming, He cleanses the prayers of the saints. Right? It is through Christ that He sanctifies our prayers so that they are acceptable before God. You know, this past week, we had uh, tornadoes touch down. Many of you probably were aware of that, I, I hope, or in southeastern Wisconsin. And, and as they touched down, I was actually at City Hall during that time. And the alarms we heard going off, and someone came over the loudspeaker and told us, uh, go into the, the center of the hallway, away from the windows. And so we were doing that, and as we are doing that, a co-worker of mine came up to me and said, hey, jokingly, can you say a prayer for the entire office? Right? That's what he asked me to do. Now, he knows I'm a Christian, but why would, he, why would he ask me that? Why would he just not do that himself? Because people understand that Christians have the ear of God. Right? They understand that we have the ear of God. Right? Why does the unbeliever have no confidence that God will hear their prayer, but they do believe that He will hear the prayer of the saints? What makes up that difference? Well, brothers and sisters, it is Christ who makes up that difference. It is on the ground of His atoning sacrifice and His shed blood that the prayers of the Christians are accepted by God. Right? Christ is always acceptable to God even when our prayers are not, when they are imperfect. But being in Christ by faith, we have been made able to draw near to the Lord through Jesus who always lives to make intercession for us. And Christ is both high priest and sacrifice was able to do what the priests of the Old Testament could not do. And that is be that perfect, atoning, once and for all sacrifice for sin. And after offering Himself up as that sacrifice, He took His seat at the right hand of the Father, innocent and holy and unstained and separated from sinners, exalted in the heavens. And now what does He do? He washes the prayers of the saints with His blood. And He stamps His name upon them as they rise up to the Father. And it's for this reason then that God looks upon the prayers of the saints with approval as they are offered in harmony with the Word of God in the name of His beloved Son and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus can say to the disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16, whatever you ask in the name of My Father, He will give it to you. Because the Father will never deny His Son. He will never deny His Son. But what we ask must be asked in faith according to the promises of God made to us in Christ Jesus. For aside from that, your prayers are, are asked in vain. But our, our hope of having our prayers answered must be founded in Christ. He is your only access point to the Father. Jesus Christ. It is only through Him that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, seeking His mercy and grace in our times of need. And so I say to all of you here today, take courage then in the midst of your trials and tribulations and sufferings. For what does Paul say to us in Romans 8.34? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. 
And brothers and sisters, how fit a mediator Christ is. Isn't He? Taking upon Himself our human nature. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to struggle and to be hungry and thirsty and tired and weak. He knows what it's like to sympathize then with the saints and to sympathize with our cries as we call out to Him to vindicate His name and to vindicate His church in judgment. And brothers and sisters, one day He will come again to do that very thing depicted for us under this seventh seal. But know this, that apart from Christ, the throne of God only spells judgment and terror for the ungodly. Right? The unbeliever has no reason to believe that God will ever hear or answer your prayer. There is no promise in Scripture to the unbeliever. They have no hope that when God returns and that seventh seal is removed and that censure of fire is dropped down upon the earth, they have, they have no hope that God will save them unless they lay hold to Christ by faith. And so if you are an unbeliever here today, I implore you, Right, to turn away from your sin and from your wickedness and lay hold of Christ the Savior. Trust in His name. And then begin to pray and pray often. For Satan loves when you neglect prayer. Because that's when he can attack you. And he despises when you are engaged in prayer faithfully because he knows the will of God is being done here on earth as the church prays. And then to those of you here today who are believers... I encourage you all the more to be faithful to your prayer life, to be devoted to prayer. Fathers, husbands, don't be afraid to pray with your wives and with your children. Men, during our time of corporate gathering, do not be afraid to pray before the congregation because your prayers are not eloquent enough or they're too short or too simple. Remember, that your prayers are acceptable and sanctified by the blood of Christ. And so pray and pray often. Because it's through praying often that your prayers will improve. And it's through prayer, and especially the prayers of the saints together, that God will answer the every need of His church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your words of encouragement and Your words of life. We ask, Lord, that You would cause us to be a a prayerful people. That You would cause us to recognize the importance of prayer. And that we would be a people devoted to prayer. Understanding that it is through prayer that the kingdom will be brought to consummation as You have ordained it by Your holy will. So, Father, we ask this day that You would help us to think about these things. That You would cause us to be reminded of our need to pray each and every day. That You would help us, Lord, to not be scared to pray, but rather see the great purpose of prayer and the great blessing that prayer is to the church. And so, Father, we come before You this morning asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.